0: I've sent poisonous stuff to companies and they've looked at it and they've re-engineered the flavor profile of things that you traditionally couldn't consume to actually be able to like taste something like that or whatever. Or I've sent, you know, huckleberry is a great example. I've sent fresh harvested huckleberries. They used analysis and AI to then map a flavor and then sent me the flavor that matched like that ripe huckleberry.
1: Welcome to Making It to Market, the podcast where we discuss everything about taking your product or service idea through to commercialization. I'm your host, Dahlia Collada. Have you ever wondered how flavors and fragrances are made? Are artificial flavors safe to eat? Should we be concerned about essential oils? Today we'll be peeking into the mind of a microbiologist and chemist as he explains the good bad, and ugly about flavors and fragrance. There's so much to learn from today's guest you don't want to miss a second. Guess what? At the end of today's episode we'll be featuring an indie musical artist that just played at South by Southwest. Information, links, and a transcript from today's episode are available in the show notes. Let's get into it. Joining me today is an industry expert you have got to meet. He has 18 years of executive experience in biology, biomimicry, chemistry, engineering, ingredient, and product development. He has developed and commercialized over 320 natural ingredients and products in fields from clean energy and biopolymers to food, flavor, and fragrance Today's guest is the co-founder and director of Sinful Beverages and Iron Light LLC based out of Montana. James Stevens, welcome to the show.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me on the show and it's great to, you know, see you again in person and be able to talk on this podcast.
1: Oh yeah, I'm so happy that you're here James. So before we get started, is it true that you've been to more than 80 countries?
0: I have. So, you know, wh- whether it's for work or for fun, most of it was for work. I've been everywhere except Antarctica. So
1: Wow. When you go for fun, how do you decide where you're going to go?
0: Usually it's more for relaxing or like, you know, stuff that's kind of related to heritage. So the last trip we did for the family was to Ireland. And so that, w- that was a blast because, you know, we got to go visit like the old family homesteads from like the 1800s before they got like forcibly moved to Montana, um, all that stuff. It's pretty interesting. So like that whole Irish side of the heritage for the kids was really neat to go explore. Wow. So
1: I have to say my last international trip was to Ireland as well, and it was the most magnificent trip ever. I could com- totally see myself living in Ireland. It's so gorgeous. And isn't it true that they don't have snakes there, Maybe- no snakes there
0: Yeah, i don't think there's any snakes there too and what i thought was interesting kind of relative to everything we're going to talk about is they used to have massive essential oil production there so like most of the world's um you know various things like melissa leaf oil and all that was all produced in ireland right so the lemon balm was grown and processed there you can still find some of the old distillery locations where they're doing essential oils for various crops too so
1: wow i had no idea and montana i didn't know montana had an like a large irish community
0: yeah, so copper mining. So the Barra Peninsula in Ireland, there was a bunch of copper miners there. And then effectively, whether they were serfs or indentured servants or slaves or whatever you want to call them, they got forcibly moved from um, Ireland to Montana to work these mines. I so idea. I always thought that was quite interesting as well, too.
1: And if I'm not mistaken, there's quite a bit of uh, like crop out of Montana, because I know we've got some suppliers, farming suppliers coming out of growing yeah. a crop
0: there. Yeah, so massive, massive amounts of um, land, kind of the traditional, you know, wheat, you know, rye, stuff like that here. Um, Big kind of big bee production. So we have lots of honey production in the area that I'm at, lots of wild honey from there. And then we have like um, flathead cherries. So there's types of cherries here. And then there's a huckleberry that's kind of unique to this region. So, you know, all the tourists love to have huckleberry when they come here. I think most of the people that live here are kind of like, eh, but tourists seem to love it and eat it up. Even though like Idaho and stuff produces more huckleberries, it seems to be Montana has capitalized on like glacier and that part of Montana is like huckleberry land. So it's kind of funny from a taste perspective.
1: Sounds like we need a road trip. That sounds like a good, yeah, I good mean, place to visit.
0: You, you know, Montanans always joke, come visit here, but then leave.
1: <laughs> they don't want they don't <laughs> want the tourists go away Yeah, we don't want you
0: to stay. It's beautiful and whatever, but please go over. You guys
1: want to control the population up there,
0: huh? <laughs> yeah. I mean, a ton of people have moved in even in the last year. Like housing prices have gone through the roof and stuff. So it's kind of insane, which is it's displacing a lot of long-term people who have lived here for a long time. Crazy. So same same problem anywhere that has growth has, right?
1: That's true. So, today we're talking about flavor and fragrance and creating sensory experiences. James, tell me how flavor and fragrance affect mood. And can you control people's mood based on flavor and fragrance?
0: Yes, I mean, that's a fairly complex kind of question that you just asked, but overall, most of your sensory input when you're eating or smelling perfume or whatever is all olfactory, right? So like when you eat something and you're like, Oh, that tastes like an orange. It didn't taste like an orange. There's only... A handful of tastes, right? It smelled like an orange and it got into your olfactory bulb and your nose and all that stuff while you're eating it. So that whole experience when you eat food and really enjoy it, whatever, is actually all triggered by the aroma. And so when you look at traditional aromatherapy, you look at kind of stuff that's associated with certain flavors, we know that smells trigger memory much heavier than other experiences it all ties back into creating this emotional experience, right? So, you know, going all the way back to the simplest ingredient everyone uses, like vanilla, right? So this might embarrass some people in the discussion, but breast milk tastes of vanilla. So most humans' first experience for a taste or whatever is of breast milk. So when they have that initial experience <laughs> up, they do it. So that's why most humans like the tick wow. flavor of vanilla. We like vanilla ice cream. We like vanilla yogurt. We like vanilla in our cookies, right? It goes back to those warm, comforting experiences Whoa. that you associate with all the way back to infancy, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at this, building an experience off flavor and fragrance and aroma is really about a couple things, right? But the most important one is triggering memory. And so when we're creating a product, you want to trigger a positive memory. We don't want it to be like, oh, that dead body you found as a kid and traumatized you, right? Cadaverine and all those horrible smells from that. No one wants a cookie that tastes like that, you know, but at the end of the day, you can do this. And so in certain situations, If you're talking about theatrical performances, if you're talking about haunted houses or whatever, those smells and scents that trigger a horrifying response are actually desired versus if you're looking at like, oh, you're having a cup of coffee, you know, it's warm in the morning, you want a bunch of scents that remind you of comfort or whatever. Um, You know, most people of Western European descent, you know, we like cinnamon, we like vanilla, we like some of the citrus stuff because it was rare. There's a lot of these reasons that kind of pulls through into this I guess, lack of term, cultural memory, whether we remember it or not, there's all these associations that just go through time, right? And then so being able to build on that lets you create that sensory experience.
1: So interesting. What's what is your preference? What is your favorite thing to work with flavor or fragrance?
0: So I really like the flavoring side of things. Because you can induce a whole almost like adventure when someone's consuming something. Fragrance is very much more like it's about subtlety and it's about adding to it. Most of the time when it comes to a food experience or consumption or a meal or whatever, you know, the flavor is the leading star, right? Then it, it's still smell technically, but it's because you're consuming and it, eating it, you know, from there. But you can kind of let that lead the entire experience or adventure where in reality, most fragrance situations, they're not supposed to overpower and do it. But like some food, like good, like Middle Eastern cooking or good Ethiopian cooking. Right. You actually just want to get kind of get slapped in the face with the various sensory (laughs) and taste experiences that are occurring. You know, you want people to get hot and sweat, maybe be uncomfortable or whatever. There's a whole point to that journey. And you're kind of allowed to do it. Right. So versus like no one wants a loud and offensive scent when it comes to, you know, whether that's perfume or, you know, body lotion or a candle or whatever. It's more about subtlety and whatever. And so yeah, I joke my barbarian Northern European heritage, you know, let's go for stuff that doesn't require subtlety right off the bat. <laughs> We can work on that later, but
1: (laughs) so I know I, I I hope we can have more conversations in the future. Um, but I, but for now, how does biomimicry, um, influence flavor selection? Um, I'll, let me ask it in a different way. Um, I, I'm a formulator and right now we've got a product line that's different flavors for lip products, but they're all natural. And so we can't go add flavored oils of watermelon, for example, how does what you do play into somebody who's trying to create natural products?
0: So I think, you know, the best way to look at biomimicry is there's already 3.8 billion years worth of R&D that's already done, right? So if you're looking for inspiration for a characteristic, you can look for the reasons for nature, right? So like lots of poisonous things or unpleasant things or drugs or whatever are bitter. Right. And it's like, okay, why is it bitter? Well, they didn't evolve to be bitter. Mammals evolved bitter receptors to make sure they didn't eat poisonous stuff. Right. So then, if we're looking for certain Things like, so like, you know, bitterness is not something that you normally search after, but you can look for that inspiration or those notes. So if you're looking for watermelon characteristics, right, or that fruity kind of stuff, but you need it more in an essential oil or whatever, we can look at, okay, what are things that occurred in similar environments? What are they? Is there a why behind it? And that's really where I think biomimicry comes into, you know, everything from packaging to labels to ink, to sustainability, to how you formulate, you can look at the fundamental why behind it and the nature, and then that can lead to inspiration. And there's two kinds of I guess natural product developers who can utilize that. There's ones that look at biomimicry in nature for inspiration and still do something synthetic or artificial or mm-hmm. whatever with mm-hmm. it. You know, you look at things like Velcro, right? Which is like the burrs on a, a thing. You can you can look at a bunch of different stuff. You look at iridescence on birds, right? So for makeup or formulation or lip formulation, right. Iridescence isn't like a dye and a color. It's actually the reflection of light and certain size particles. So then you can look at inspiration from there. And then do you do you look for that material in nature and harvest it? Or do you actually look for a way to synthetically create that? And so Flavoring is a great example. So you're talking about flavoring, um, you know, lip balm kind of you know, material or, you know, those kind of different things, chapsticks, you know, there are all sorts of rules around natural flavor, right? So when we're looking at natural flavor, you want watermelon, we can absolutely get you a natural watermelon flavor that does contain watermelon. It's going to have to contain other things in it, right? So that's, a, that's why they call it one if, right? So you have watermelon juice in it, maybe for some reason, maybe only for the namer, right? And then you have other natural flavors that are present that create the watermelon flavor and experience, but it's still natural. And so with all this kind of formulation stuff, this is where it really gets kind of fun and weird. And I think it's fun because it allowed me to do science no one would normally bother to do, (laughs) is if there's a level of rules and we have guardrails that we have to work around, Mm -hmm. we end up really needing to be like, okay, what can we do with these guardrails? So I love the natural flavor designations, right? So, you know, the USDA's, you know, the FDA's definition of natural flavor, it's pretty squishy. You can do a lot of stuff and get it. Mm -hmm. But then the European Union, their definitions of natural flavor are much more rigorous, right? And then you look at, you know, there's, you know, ISOs developing, you know, definitions of natural for cosmetic components and all this kind of stuff. Those guardrails really allow us to do certain things, but they also let us be super creative, right? So if we're trying to fit something into that thing and we need it, like you want it to be like the most crazy watermelon can flavor you've ever had. Yeah. But you can't use the artificial flavors right. that the candy company used to use all through the 50s, 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then we have to look at probably using dozens or hundreds more ingredients from natural sources to get to the same flavor profile versus a handful of potentially synthetic wow. components that could have been used the other way.
1: And it sounds like you're the guy that does that.
0: I do a lot of that work. So my, my early days getting into it, it was all about sustainability. So kind of the adventure started out like, okay, we were making jet fuel for like aviation projects from algae we sucked out of the ocean with big artificial whales. It was ridiculous, right? And then at the same time, because we were doing fermentation and processing it, we were making jet fuel that also happened to be the flavor of orange, right? Oh, wow. Or the scent of orange for that. Uh-huh. And then that led us down this whole adventure. And then as the years progressed, what we got really good at was finding natural systems that could allow us to replace lots of synthetic components.
1: Wow. It seems like it would be very time consuming. And in a like, uh, going on an adventure, like let's go create watermelon. Like, how do you even start that process of like finding watermelon flavor? Or
0: yeah. yeah, so I mean, so a lot of it starts with the science, right? So a lot of the big flavoring companies that are out there, they have huge massive labs and libraries, and they do. They take stuff out, they characterize it. They have gas chromatography olfactory systems, or someone's injecting something on a sample, and they're smelling it as it comes through the detector. 'Cause sometimes they don't know what the molecule is that has that scent. So you have a perfumer or a flavorist, right? And and you know, and the flavorists, when they do it, to be a master flavorist, you have to train for huge periods of time and apprentice to people and there's only a limited number of them in the world or whatever. You know, so like it's crazy, but these big flavor and fragrance companies have all these huge libraries to actually do this and help develop it. And once they kind of break down the thing, they can then look at all the natural compounds they have available. And then it's almost like an art form, right? There's someone there who's a master flavorist or a master perfumer or whatever, building these components together with this little bit of jasmine or this root from you know Africa or whatever, depending if you need it to be natural or non-GMO or clean label. Like when you start a project with a lot of these companies, you actually line out all the things that you need and then they start saying well we can do this or we can't do this right wow. and so based on these requirements let's say it's natural non-gmo certified organic all of a sudden the list of compounds might go from 20 30 40,000 compounds they can use to like 800 and then from there if you put more restrictions on it like it needs to be affordable then it might go to 20 yeah <laughs> right? that's my
1: next question is it sounds like getting something so uniquely made might be cost prohibitive if especially if you compare it to A a flavor oil, for example, that's easy to get.
0: So so I do a lot of custom flavoring work for beverages, for my own projects, whatever. It's shockingly not expensive to go through the whole process and a lot of times a lot of times the flavoring houses will work with you so the flavoring stuff is still all proprietary so if they build a flavor for you and they usually put their own ip in it right Mm -hmm. so like most of the flavoring companies have their own like bitter blockers so Mm. that that's a huge kind of important thing you know so if we look at formulation lots of active ingredients have a bitter or unpleasant characteristic to them so if you look at you know you're trying to do you know anti-inflammatory materials in lip balm or whatever a lot of that might have a bitter characteristic so then you have to have a bitter blocker there anyways to make sure that doesn't carry through mm-hmm. and then and so lots of these companies have their own natural or synthetic bitter blockers they've developed or sweetness enhancers or whatever so and they usually have trade names for them or mm-hmm. whatever so
1: when somebody has a trade named product does that have to be put into the inky list
0: um so yes from what i understand the the base ingredient needs to be in the inky and it needs to be listed on your ingredient deck right but not the brand
1: name right not the trademark no not the brand name i think it's just
0: the base yeah i think it's just the base product so and i'm I'm used to more the trade names on the um, flavoring side. So on the inky list and the cosmetic side, I don't. And you're in a realm when you talk about lip balm, we talk about toothpaste, we talk about oral care. There's a couple of these ones that are technically topical or uh, cosmetic or whatever kind of world that like blend the two too. And then that gets really confusing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We don't, we don't use brand names in our inky lists. It's all just the materials. Yeah. Going back to like n- natural flavor. OK, so you go to the grocery store and you get a soda, for example, Coca-Cola or like, not Coca-Cola, but just some sort of soda, I guess, pop if you're from the Midwest. But yeah. And <laughs> do you call it it's, pop? Still, it? it's still soda here. OK, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and you read the ingredient natural flavors like what can you make of that as a consumer? What do you because like if it's natural, why can't you tell me all the ingredients in it? You know, why can't you tell me it's what what's natural about it? What's it coming from? So
0: since you can't, so this is actually was designed a lot of it around flavoring was to protect companies like Coca-Cola, companies like the flavoring houses, brands is because if you put a bunch of natural components together, technically you can't patent a lot of that stuff unless it's kind of a unique mixture of formulation. Okay. So the the natural, kind of the natural and artificial flavor monker is one way to help companies protect IP. So my guess is clever lobbying and whatever allowed for all that, you know probably way before my lifetime, you know, allowed for them to do that. When as a consumer, the natural designation, a lot of people say it's bastardized, but you know, I think for natural flavors, pretty much what you can be, assured of is it's probably, it's not going to be made from petroleum. So that's the one thing I always tell someone is like, if it's natural flavors, those flavoring components are probably not going to be made from petroleum. I say probably because Mm -hmm. there's always allowances for processing aids and all Uh sorts of crazy stuff. Right. So there's rules, Mm -hmm. but you know, is it extracted from an orchid in the Amazon to get your flavor? Probably not. Um, e is going to be much more like that with their natural flavor designations. What's likely going to happen is someone took base components, you know, that were natural, right? So, you know, maybe an extract from a bark maybe leftover stuff from another process and they're going to have done other chemistry to it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when even though it says natural, there's still a bunch of processing that goes into all those different aspects. Mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, most of the stuff has gone through FEMA grass. There's been lots of studies on it. Like the safety profiles of the vast majority, especially at the usage level for flavors, as well, kind of understood for most, if not all, of these materials. Mm-hmm.
1: What about it being vegan? Can you are you okay? You said no, likely no petroleum derivatives, but what about? animal derivatives to making flavors like that are natural? Oh, there's
0: most there's most definitely unless it says vegan on the label, you should probably assume there's animal components in it. Wow. Unless the product can do it. just I mean, there might not be, but there's lots of backbone stuff that's used. So like glycerol is used for a lot of things. A lot of that glycerin comes from the animal processing industry or whatever, right? Because it's leftover fat or waste or whatever. And then that might get split into biodiesel and the glycerin might get sold off or whatever. So I mean, unless it specifically spells out that it's vegan on the label. There are tons of vegan natural flavors out Mm -hmm. there. All reality, artificial flavors are way more likely to be vegan. Probably also likely to be from petroleum, but Mm -hmm. you know, a a billion year old swamp that got sucked out of the ground is probably, is that less or more vegan than (laughs) something else, right? (laughs)
1: I'm with James Stevens of Simple Beverages and Iron Light LLC. Stick around till after the break. We're going to talk about fake meat flavors, terpenes, and essential oils. We'll be right back. Are you looking for high-quality, professional-grade nutritional supplements that you can only get with the help of an integrative health practitioner? Well, believe it or not, I'm actually a degreed health science and integrative medicine practitioner, and I'm able to extend my 15% off practitioner discount to you on over 350 professional-grade brands, plus they gave you free shipping on $49 or more. Please visit wellevate.me slash dahlia hyphen colada. This episode is sponsored by Salve Naturals, the leader in cruelty-free, plant-based, and natural topical medicines, sourcing ingredients from American farmers. These natural products are freshly handmade in the USA. Please visit salvenaturals.com. Or if you're in Texas, shop from your local HEB's Healthy Living Department. We're looking for inspiring expert guests and original musical artists. Think you have what it takes to be a part of the show? Please go to makingittomarket.com and apply. Making It to Market is a listener and sponsor supported show. Want to help us out to keep the show going? Find out how in the show notes. Okay, so if you're going into your library as you being the formulator, like you you James, going in to make a, a like a flavor profile for somebody, you really have to have a tremendous knowledge on ingredients and actually have experienced all the different things to be able to do this, right?
0: I, I think so. I think to build a good product and a good flavor profile, people like you you someone has to be play around with it, especially if you're building it from scratch the flavoring houses will let you jumpstart a bunch of that, right? So like you as a formulator, would I say go buy these 30 different compounds and try to make your strawberry from scratch that way? I would absolutely not ever suggest that. Yeah, I would be like, Go to a flavoring house that specializes in kind of what you're looking at, right? So, some are really good at savory, some are good at citrus, some are really good at certified organic or whatever from there. So, mm-hmm. you know, ask around and find that kind of partnership from there because they'll jumpstart that whole kind of chemical part of it and give you a library of materials. Mm-hmm. And so like in my shelves down here, I have a library of like hundreds of different flavors that I've worked on or whatever. And some of them do really cool stuff. I've sent berries. I've sent poisonous stuff to companies and they've looked at it and they've re-engineered the flavor profile of things that you traditionally couldn't consume to actually be able to like taste something like that or whatever. Or I've sent, you know, huckleberry is a great example. I've sent fresh harvested huckleberries. They used analysis and AI to then map a flavor and then sent me the flavor that matched like that right huckleberry back. And it was close to spot on with the right sugar content and making it taste like a berry. We were able to get jams and stuff. People couldn't tell the stuff with the engineered flavor apart from the stuff. And it was still natural, right? So when I say engineered, it's just, they took, maybe they took 20 or 30 ingredients and blended that together Mm. all from natural sources to make that one. Cause like, Huckleberries don't grow in fields, right? They're only wild harvested. They're limited in whatever. But if you want to make a huckleberry soda liner, we did an alcohol, right? We worked with someone to do a huckleberry flavored seltzer. And with that, there's not enough huckleberries in the world to harvest that. And they go bad and get off flavors and all that stuff. So if you want to get that flavor profile through, you have to almost build it from these other ways. And it's a way to protect rare resources, right? I mean, in theory, someone could analyze this is going to sound horrible, but I'll say it anyways, because I talked to some guys working on fake meat the other day. So fresh on my brain, you could take a sample from tigers, <laughs> uh-huh. right? And like analyze it and then be like, okay, if we put this in fake meat before we cook it, it should taste like a raw tiger. And then if it cooks, it should cook the same way. And it would taste like tiger meat, right? Wow. So in theory, uh-huh. you could still conserve that, but offer these crazy people who want these flavor experiences and stuff.
1: Holy cow. <laughs> you're going into an entirely different subject. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's
0: weird, but like, but it also I think a lot of this stuff leads to con- conservation. And I think that's the thing, even I missed it in my earlier sustainability days is, you know, I think there's something in the portfolio to be said that yes, a lot of this stuff, you know, do I think it should be made from oil? No. Do I think we should be able to do, a, we should do a lot of chemistry to make abundant raw materials usable in different ways that we're traditionally used to? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. Actually, I, I really like that direction. And like, who's taking that initiative? Is that something that's uh, on f- forefront of uh, all these other manufacturers who are making other flavors and fragrances of trying to create that sustainable element to their business model?
0: I mean, weirdly enough, it used to be sustainability could be your business model. Now it's kind of expected. So, like, with the supply chain, especially COVID's made it way worse, and then who knows what's going on in Europe right now, right? So when you start looking at supply chain shocks and stuff, like, being able to do this, that's in the forefront of everybody's mind. Whether it's a rare ingredient, the pricing goes up. Vanilla pricing is all over the map. If we look at cosmetics and stuff, auger wood is super rare, right? It's, like, a fungus-infected wood in Mm. India, right, that they chop down and harvest. Like, it's super rare. The natural stuff's not there. You know, you look at things like... um, I forgot what it is off the top of my head. I don't like it. It's not jojoba oil. It's the other one, patchouli, right? Uh, So uh patchouli's uh had shortages in supply chain stocks. So Mm -hmm. people have used biotechnology to make patchouli scent, right? And so now a lot of those scents that were traditionally from harvested materials can now come from biotechnology or synthetic chemistry or whatever as well too.
1: That's amazing. I guess when people think natural, they think individual ingredients. They don't think that there's going to be 400 ingredients to make up one flavor profile. That's, but it's still be considered natural.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, what's really fascinating, right? Yeah. Is people don't realize how complex flavor and fragrance can really be. Right. I used to have a thing I'd share every so often I should find it and send it to you. Is it's like, if you broke down the chemistry of a strawberry flavor, just in a strawberry, right. Or you mm-hmm. did the chemical list of a strawberry, right. The actual ingredient list of all the chemicals in a strawberry is massive. Uh-huh right. Or a fruit or anything you look at there's, it's actually made of a ton of ingredients. So if you look at a strawberry that you think's natural, there's, you know, everything from benign sounding stuff like sugar or whatever, to mm-hmm. like all sorts of scary, scary chemical names that the fruit actually produces.
1: Yeah. It's amazing. Okay. Let's talk about terpenes. Okay. Okay. Because terpene, how would you describe terpenes for the listeners who don't, I've never heard terpenes before.
0: So there's two that everyone knows. So if we're talking terpenes and we're not talking, you know, like the hemp slash cannabis industry specific kind of mystique around terpenes, (laughs) there's two everyone knows, right? There's D-limonene, which is citrus, and there's linole, which is lavender. Mm -hmm. I I specifically talk about those two because they seem to generate most of the effects people associate with terpenes and essential oils, right? So D-limonene, citrus cells smells, they're fresh, they're light, they're refreshing, they improve your mood, they improve your concentration, all that kind of stuff. They're uplifting, right? And so D-limonene seems to lead that. And then the, on the other side of that, linalool lavender, right? Makes everyone sleepy, right? Like most people exposed to lavender experience a huge decrease in their productivity, they get tired, all that kind of stuff. So when you look at it, those are the two I do. But those are the easiest ones for people to think, oh, okay, I know that, you know, citrus smell like the primary scent D-limonene, that's citrus, you know, lavender, the primary scent, linalool, that's lavender.
1: Mm-hmm. When you're talking terpenes, is that just the olfactory? Like, what's the science of that? Like, because it obviously influences smell and taste.
0: Yeah. So I'll work backwards from the most complicated of it and then we'll go to simpler only sure. because what's crazy is so scents get in your nose and they trigger your olfactory bulb, which then triggers an entire cascade in your brain of various drugs, dopamine, serotonin, like all the neurochemistry, right? So when you're really looking at scents and terpenes and olfactory scent, you have a whole cascade of like, it hits your olfactory bulb, and then a bunch of stuff's released to it. Then what's even crazier on top of that is based on your memories related to that scent, then it's going to release other drugs and other hormones, right? So like, if you got whipped with the belt and it was oiled with lavender, mm-hmm. you're not going to find lavender <laughs> peaceful and resting or whatever. You're going to have no a way, panic dude. attack, right? Every <laughs> single time you smell lavender, right? That's why a lot of people, you know, it's a lot of older people don't like the smell of leather. They got whipped with oiled leather belts. Mm-hmm. So they don't like the smell of lavender. They don't like it. It's really fascinating, right? Yeah. And so, so that's the most complicated part of it, right? But then there's also like effectively a drug interaction biochemistry component to this as well too. And this is kind of, you know, the cannabis industry has really actually been pushing this because there's this mystique that terpenes cause the entourage effect and do all this magical Uh stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Those of us who come out of flavor and fragrance and stuff, are like, look, there's something to aromatherapy. We know that, but the other stuff and maybe it's not real. Well, we do now know that beta carophyllene binds the cb2 receptor which is also the same receptor that other cannabinoids bind mm-hmm. so now we know that actually terpenes have cannabinoid like effects as well too that can do things like mitigate pain so beta carophylline is high in black pepper oil which has always been associated with you know pain reduction right so like in, in a variety of different things so now we're finding the biochemical pathways because you know honestly the, the cannabis industry is like is obsessed with the thing and thinks the plant's magical yeah. but they're learning everything they can and on the plant well the rest of the industry kind of brushes a lot of stuff aside mm-hmm. so i think without that constant survey we wouldn't see it but now we're determining there is true effects with terpenes right there are terpenes they're binding the endocannabinoid system there is this stuff that's occurring now which is just fascinating
1: mm-hmm. could you say terpenes and essential oils are the same thing
0: so th- there's always jokes about this so all essential oils that i know of contain terpenes but not all terpenes are essential oils right mhm so essential oils are going to contain terpenes if they're from an aromatic plant source. Mm-hmm. There, my guess is there's some plants out there that, hey, I made this essential oil from and it doesn't have any terpenes in it. I'm sure that's the case. So, you know, some rules lawyer out there that listens to a podcast will be like, look, I found this one plant that has an essential oil but doesn't have terpenes in it. Okay, yes, that could happen. But from my experience, every essential oil I've analyzed contains terpenes. You can get terpenes through synthetic manufacturing. You can get them as extracts from wood that we wouldn't consider it. I mean, turpentine is technically a mixture of terpenes or at least old school turpentine is right. So when you look at it, there's ways to get terpenes that aren't from the essential oil of the plant.
1: Okay. I've met people who say, Hey Dahlia, stop making, stop buying essential oils and start using our terpenes.
0: So that is most. So if, if you're talking to most of the, to quote unquote terpene houses that mainly work in the cannabis space or they're or they're in the hemp and cannabis space they're buying a mixture of botanical terpenes usually the pure chemicals usually from china and then re-blending that back together
1: as a formulator should i stick with my eos
0: The problem with essential oils Uh versus a compounded material is there's variability between the plants and seasonality in the product, Mm -hmm. right? So that's why, like, when you buy lavender oil, there's a gajillion grades of it, right? So you look at, you know, French lavender producers will have various types of lavender, and then they might have 20 different grades of that lavender as well, too. Mm -hmm. Oh, I've seen it. I mean, I see it. Yeah, so they're trying to combat the seasonality and the production effect of that material. So in theory, yes. Isolated individual essential oils or you know, the, the terpenes from essential oils could be blended back together. There's other stuff in essential oils though, right? If you're working with a lavender essential oil that was steam distilled, there's other characteristics that come through. There's novel breakdown components that occur. Did they use a copper still, which removes some of the off flavors versus stainless steel still? There's these nuance that comes with essential oils yeah. that batch perfumers, people who are really kind of making like high-end ingredients, they really like that because it creates a novel, protectable thing, right? Those nuanced compounds that are in that product are very, very hard to replicate, especially from the -the run-of-the-mill things. You know, the big three flavoring houses you know, Givadon, IFF, Fermanesh, they probably could replicate almost anything you got from essential oil and did it on the market. You might not want to pay for it once they were done replicating those characteristics. That's another matter, but they could do it. But like the average like company, competitor, whatever, they're not going to be able to recreate that uniqueness from that essential oil or the natural product and i think that's where natural products really really shine is that ability to create uniqueness in ways that other people can't get to
1: absolutely oh man this is so exciting i'm so honored to have you on thank you so much
0: james thank you for having me on yes
1: so happy and um very appreciative of your time and your knowledge. Oh, this is
0: good. I I, I like it. Like, this is the kind of stuff I love doing. It's because it's it's just fun to be able to talk about this. And honestly, I think it's, I'm getting, as I get older, I'm more and more interested in how do you inspire other people to kind of like level up and do great things as well, too, because there's so many creative people out there, but they also have these weird blocks that kind of prevent them from going to the next step.
1: To learn more about James Stevens, check him out on LinkedIn or check out his company, drinksinful.com. As always, I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, please subscribe to Making It to Market wherever you listen to podcasts or listen from our website, makingittomarket.com. Thank you for your honest five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app and a special thanks to our show sponsors and listeners. Without your support, I would not be able to do this. Please share your favorite episodes. You don't want to miss the next one where we continue the discussion with James about biomimicry and artificial intelligence in creating flavors. We'll also talk about organic versus GMO ingredients. If there's a topic you'd like to hear, have a question or even a comment you'd like for me or today's guest to address. Feel free to leave me a voice message on our podcast phone line. If we air your question or comment in an upcoming episode, we'll send you a free making it to market t-shirt or mug. Details are in the show notes. Before you leave, check out this local musical artist from Houston, Texas. He just played at South by Southwest. This is Sabri. Thanks for listening. Until the next time, make decisions that make a difference. We all get some of ourselves to take some chances. We all had some hits and misses, I am confessing. i trying to pull up to the scene, run through the city, feeling like a theme, all a little heavy for the second wind, and the push was just like a dream, yeah. It's all come a little slow, but now